Hi everyone, this is Chris with the Theotech Podcast, and in today's episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. I had the chance to be interviewed as part of a study done by Gretchen Hozinga, who is working on a PhD dissertation studying AI and faith. She's also the executive director of the nonprofit AI and Faith, and we had a really interesting and wide-ranging conversation about what Christianity has to say about the future of AI. In this conversation, I was the one being interviewed, she was the one leading, and so I hope you enjoyed this time where the tables are kind of turned, and I got to share some of my thoughts about what scripture has to say about how God is using AI to fulfill uh, the gospel. So, without further ado, here's the episode. To sort of frame this, we're not interrogating the benefits of AI or the harms of AI. We're interrogating, I'm interrogating, the impact of Christian thinking, ethical thinking on the conversation about ethical AI. Most of what's happening now is being addressed from a secular perspective and hmm. it's successful or, or not as it might be. Um, but what I wanna know is do Christians have any, uh, anything to add to the conversation that isn't addressed by the secular crowd that might be impactful in the development of robust and beneficial AI. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. So um, what I drew up in terms of literature and so on is that there's a lot of these tensions in the development and even use of AI. A lot of these are on the development side, but some of them can be like, my choices cause these things to happen. Um, okay that are that's kind of a lens of trade-offs and this is where people are pouring their ethical efforts to resolving these tensions right we want robust ai but we want to preserve people's privacy um what do we do technically what do we do legally those kinds of things so that's the framework um so let's just start to talk and we'll go where the conversation takes us. I really want to know you're an active professional in AI and you're also a professing Christian. So you'll be living in this space personally Mm -hmm. um, and maybe having given some thought, well, let me ask you off the top. Have you given thought to this? Uh, Certainly. And uh, both because of my own work um, and also because of, involvement with AI and faith um, and theology of technology kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, for me, the most, the most unique thing that I, I even kept reminding David Brenner from AI and faith of what I thought was the unique value beyond ethics that Christianity brings and that any faith would bring, at least I, th- I think it would, um, is telos, is like end, is purpose, is uh, basically we as Christians believe the Bible is a witness to what God is doing in creation uh, from the beginning unto the end. And so we believe there's a certain direction to things that God is bringing about through AI and through human innovation and technology. And so our unique concern isn't merely ethics, which is more of the domain of what you know what you might say is what's in the common interest and good of humanity. It is very specific. It's peculiar. It's the kingdom of God, which is more than the common good. There is something unique about that um, and the, the belief in the new creation that Jesus has inaugurated through his death and resurrection. So 
in light of those things, we, we can participate in the common good because we believe it's a witness to the kingdom, but it's not really an end in itself. As a Christian, that's, that's what I believe. Um, it's a witness. And so it is something that people, whether they are Christians or believe or not, can experience as something good. Um, and in so doing, it might point them to the real good, what is what we believe to be truly good that God is bringing about at the end um, to restore all things. So at the highest level, that's what I think is what was what is essentially Christian in this conversation about AI. Um, and the part that I never want to miss in any conversation we have from the faith perspective when we talk about AI and its impact on society and religion and development and everything else. So drilling on the telos again, because that's something I've thought through about what is the end game of AI? in most people's minds, you know, the vast majority of people making it and how does that contrast? So I think that um, there's a couple foils that you could use when we think and talk about it. And I know that even in the non-Christian realm, people don't agree on what the end is, right? Because some people think about the singularity as AI surpassing hum human intelligence and other people believe that it's more of a uh, extension of human abilities, and it's still people who are responsible for its use. But I think that um, when it comes to telos and purpose and things like that, one of the convictions I have, a Christ, uh, have as a Christian studying the theology of technology is that uh, God is not only redeeming human souls or human beings, but also human makings, human creations, the things that we make. And that's a really essential theological belief, I think, that we see with you know, if you've read from the garden to the city, uh, the book by John Deere, or just looking at scripture itself, uh, that creation begins with a garden that's kind of wild and uncultivated that human beings are put in to take care of, but it ends. And then the first, one of the big early, uh, I guess you could say sins, quote unquote, in Genesis was when, uh, Nimrod, I believe formed the first city, uh, in Babel and things like that. And so it was kind of a rebellion against God's will that humans would spread throughout the whole world, uh, right? The creation mandate to or the cultural mandate to fit, to be multiplied, be fruitful and multiply and spread. And then the Tower of Babel was an expression of human rebellion against God's design and will by trying to stay in one big city and just build a, a monument to the name of the people. And God scattered them in, in Babel in changing all the languages. Um, and, but we see that at the end, at the end in Revelation, uh, what does God give that's considered a bride coming down out of heaven onto earth? It's a new city. It's the new Jerusalem. It's a new creation. And so God has redeemed what human beings tried to create out of an act of rebellion and to not depend on God and, and to be willful in its own way. And um, God redeemed that and gave human beings something even better that took what they created and made it uh, as glorious as it ought to be. So that narrative of redemption of human makings is something I see in scripture. And it's something I believe God is doing also with artificial intelligence and AI. Um, and also as a Christian, I like we read in Revelation, the apocalyptic literature, that there is also evil in this world. Uh, there is uh, Satan, an adversary that is uh, superhuman. So it's greater than human intelligence for sure. Um, and is an active will against the will of God. And so seeks to corrupt what human beings have also made. Um, and so I think that the way that I view AI is that uh, it is something that within God's plan and God's story uh, is, is definitely something that God wills, but it's also something that's definitely corrupted uh, and actively used towards evil ends that may be unintentional to human beings who are 
ignorant or uh, of those possible ends, um, or even maybe desiring to, to use it for those ends, to control other people, to dominate other people, to be able to live and have immortality, um, you know, outside of God by trying to download their soul or their memories to the cloud and then re-upload it to a new body, all kinds of ways that I think that, uh, that, that, uh, AI as a technology, um, can and is being used in ways that are contrary to God's will, but ultimately is still under God's will to fulfill a very unique and specific purpose that God's going to unveil in time. Um, and as a Christian working in the field of AI, that's kind of my desire is to be in harmony with um, the way that God is using it, being while being fully aware that we can never fully mitigate any kind of uh, abuses of it or unethical and evil uses of AI as well. Okay, so... With that framework, which I think is fantastic, um, and you're on, there, there's two buckets for, we'll just keep using the term ethics for lack of, a, you know, diversions. Um, the research and development and making side of AI has its own set of ethical conundrums, as does the use of it. So the upstream and the downstream, and they're two different groups of people. Of course, the makers often use it as well, but the users yeah. mostly don't make it. So I want to push in with you on the, the R&D side and the development of products and tools for obviously good in the framework of a fallen world and knowing that what you do is going to be corrupted by Satan in the fall, but you're going to make it anyway. Um, what can Christians do on that upstream end proactively as they make these tools? Anything? Yeah, that's, um, that's interesting. And it's something that I've been thinking about. I sent a link to you in the chat of a talk I yeah. recently gave at Missional AI Conference. And I think I go into one of the examples that I, I think is a, a way that we help. Um, and it's basically to give people power over their data as much power as we can as a creator of AI to give them as much power as we can over their data so that they can use it for those things which are in accord with their beliefs and values and the values of their community. Um, and so what I'll give, I gave in that talk and I've written an article about it too, as a small example, uh, which isn't really an ethical one, it's just a very practical one. Uh, in our work with Spiffio to make churches accessible in many languages, there was a time when we uh, experimented with Google Translate and Google Translate was translating the, the, the word, English word worship to the Indonesian word ibadah, which is a correct translation in a Christian context. But later Google retrained its algorithms on I think more Islamic content. Indonesia is the largest Islamic, Islamic country in the world, uh, majority Muslim population. Um, and then the translation shifted from ibadah to sholat, which is Muslim prayer. Uh, and as a user of Google Translate, you really have no power over what you get out of that. And so if you're a Muslim, it's maybe more useful for you. Uh, if you're a Christian, it's less useful for you. And then there's no, there's no power that you have over this powerful algorithm to make it useful for you again. Uh, you're at the mercy of uh, the big companies that have the infrastructure and resources and the will to, to be able to power this engine. And so I see kind of a movement for, for Christians in AI and, and things like that which is a movement towards empowering people to give them more power, to give them more freedom, more control so that they can use it for those things that are in accord with their own conscience. So perhaps you can tie it to that concept of, of conscience on a community level and an individual level. But the practical thing that ends up happening is in Spiffio, we try to give our users those tools uh, to train a custom language model, custom machine translation, or just even simple tools like automatic replacements and things like that 
so that as they're getting these results that uh, from an AI engine for translation that are not in accord with what they need, they can go ahead and make those changes themselves and uh, make it work better for them. Well, let me so that's one example. Let me yeah. interrupt you on that. In, your customer sounds quite sophisticated. Um, you know, a person who could actually tweak things in a product to make them more conducive to their community. It wouldn't be somebody like me in a congregation, right? It would be the admin of a program or, I mean, I don't know how Spiffio works, but. Um, I think that it's a little bit sophisticated, but not as sophisticated as you might think. Mm. Um, you know, if you're a member of a congregation, you're not obviously having to log in and password to be able to change things in the church, you know, in the church right. Spiffio instance. Uh, but if you're a volunteer, you could, you know, if you're a volunteer with the church and they give you an, a username and login for that church instance, you could have access to change these things. There would still be a technical uh, person that would be dealing. I mean, my mother is a member of a congregation. There's no blinking way she could do that. Um, um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's it's more likely that it would be somebody more technical, at least technical enough to use a smartphone. So, um, you know, I think that uh, there's some things that are so easy that you could, it's literally like a like button if somebody can press a like button or a dislike button, you could get feedback loops, right? That tell you whether or not this has a problem or not, like a specific translation or line. And that's something that anyone who's well-versed in Instagram or whatever could do. But there are other things that require more technical ability. And for some people who are not as technologically literate, you do need to have a community, you know? Um, you need to have a community that comes alongside them that has some of that skill in it to be able to actually help get their input, to, to, to close that feedback loop. Yeah. So it's not just, it's not an individualistic view. It is a, a community view uh, that has individuals within it who have knowledge to contribute. Okay. So you had started with an example of give, empowering people to um, have agency over the tool that they use that you've given them, which may be uniquely Christian or may not. Maybe there's other uh, well-minded people who would want to empower their users for their own privacy or their own, you know, translation preferences or whatever. Um, but you started to go down the road on another example um, on the, the front end, on the development and design and how you, if there's a unique contribution Christians can make as they're making these tools. I mean, you've got a, a company that's not like a Google or a Microsoft. So you have more agency on the driving of how this tool gets made and used, whereas these others don't. So I guess yeah. my question is really, and it's kind of at the core, what do Christians uniquely offer? And we're st still living at the development and design end rather than the use end in terms um, of, of how they approach what they make and how they make it. Well, I think that, uh... I was trying to lay out earlier, just maybe the context in which I'm operating, which I think you already captured well, you restated it to me. Um, and so I know that you got that. And I think that context informs how, like the product that I'm going about building. And uh, I'm recently, I've been recently reading Jacques Ellul's The Presence of the Kingdom. Jacques Ellul was the theology of technology thinker kind of, and it had some fascinating ideas in there because he talks about living in that tension of not seeking to fix the world because you believe God's the savior and yet not being content with leaving the world as it is. Um, and how it's so easy to get molded into the world's uh, way of optimizing things, of techniques, of basically having to say that we have to optimize for the things that everybody else is trying to optimize for. We have to do it in the way that everyone else is doing it. This is gonna sound maybe somewhat 
strange or controversial, but I think that as a person of faith, there's actions we take, and maybe others would do this too, but there's actions we take as creating in creating AI that probably isn't driven by market forces. It's not simply driven by what we think will maximize, um, uh, you know, the growth of our the growth or even survival of our business. Um, I, I I approach it by saying, what if what if God is the customer? And so if God is my customer and I obsess over what God wants, then what does that what does that mean? Like if God is is inviting me to build this thing in a certain way that's not like in the traditional way that it's funded or that it makes money or whatever in the world, then what does that look like? And how can I continue to step out in faith to continue that journey when it doesn't seem like it's going to become necessarily successful in the traditional ways that we see success defined uh, in the market by and large, it's just a weird journey of faith. And it has, it ends up creating a, a weird product. I would say a weird, unique product that wouldn't exist any other way. Um, and so like, if you want to ask, like, what is the uniquely faith-driven thing for the person of faith, for the creator of AI or the researcher or whatever, um, it is it is not so much at the realm of ethics directly, I think, as much as it is in the realm of faith literally, like walking by faith, trusting God, trusting God's promise, seeking to follow in the power of the Holy Spirit, what God leads us to do in what we're building, in who we're serving, in the way we go about doing it with all of that ambiguity. Um, and in that ongoing, it's an ongoing process. It's not a principle, right? It's an ongoing process of relationship with God to try to create the things that we know from scripture are things that God desires and to do so as faithfully as we can. That is the thing that uniquely makes it a Christian, like like a faith driven process, uh, I think of creating AI. Um, and that's something that is, you wouldn't have it in any other kind of, I think, religious context. You can't, we can't take for granted the assumptions of, of, uh, of what the industry says, like, this is what AI is really about, or this is what's really valuable in AI. We can't assume it or take it for granted. We would want to look at it through the lens of scripture, of God's will, of our own discernment and seeking what the Holy Spirit wants in how we go about doing these things, knowing that we're going to be imperfect, um, but seeking to be faithful. Um, so I take it to that kind of almost that personal level. Uh, to to define what it looks like to be uniquely Christian in it. It's not just a principle. It really is in that relationship with God that you're continuing to walk in faith. So this is just blowing my brain in a good way. Ethics is the minimum and Christianity brings another dimension, much like Jesus fulfilled the law, but then commanded us to go beyond the law yeah i would say that yes if you're called to be generous be more generous you know a tithe is the minimum so ethical behavior which is what we're we're just trying to kind of keep a lid on evil in the (laughs) ethics world and you're bringing a an on beyond dimension to it to say we should go where christ goes on this how does that play in I mean, you've got your own group and your own product. Do you, does everyone that you work with share your worldview and your vision? I think that uh, everyone that I work with may not share my worldview to the same degree. Um, we do share like the, the values of making every event accessible in any language. Mm-hmm. Um, I think to take, maybe draw from some theologians uh, who have talked about the common good, like Abraham Kuyper or whatever like that, is that, um, you know, there's not one square inch of all creation that God does not say mine over. And so there's an element there where we believe that it really is a good thing for every event to be accessible in any language. And uh, anyone who 
kind of subscribes to that as well is able to work with a clear conscience on our product, whatever worldview that they may be coming from in it. So um, there's just, and then there's the practical element of employment and of skill building and of relationships and work and everything, right? That have meaningful work and those things which also feed into it. Um, there are people who do share in that passion. And I think one thing that we never want to collapse, which is very easy to collapse in society today, is that um, I think that for my business, I would say that, hey, even if we were to be very lucrative and profitable, if we failed to help churches to become accessible in any language at large, then we haven't really succeeded as a company or as a product. Um, so that's a unique angle. It's not exclusive. It doesn't mean that it's only for religious purposes, but it's the one thing that if it doesn't, if it gets overlooked, we're not really succeeding. And so that's kind of, we, we make space for that and we kind of keep the shape of the company and the product open so that that is made possible as much as possible. And that's what we seek to do. Um, and just practically one more example, in addition to the Google Translate one, we were working with another speech recognition engine. And it was so funny because every time that I would say the word God, it would get filtered out. It would get filtered out. And I was surprised. It turns out that God was considered profanity. It was in the profanity filter. Uh, and so I closed the feedback loop with the company, I think, and just like, hey, can you take God out of the profanity filter? Our, our customers are churches. Uh, you know, maybe the majority of their customers don't need that, but it kind of shows that the, the secularization of their data set, you know, and, this, and kind of the strangeness of some of those decisions. Um, and so that's kind of what I see as one of the also practical ways of existing as, you know, as a Christian in the marketplace, in the, in the industry, and as a company that seeks to make space for Christ, for the gospel, for church language and religious language and those kinds of things. It's not exclusively what we serve, but by making space for it, we also have kind of a feedback loop impact on the rest of the industry that just kind of reminds them, like, this is a really important part of human existence that what we're building needs to also support and serve. Um, that's kind of more practical public, you know, public theology kind of angle on it. Um, so I just thought of that example that recently came up. Yeah. I, I love that. Um, interestingly that the secular vision would be that God is a swear word and that, uh, that's just kind of funny. Um, it's strange. It's, I don't know how those decisions get made. And so right. just as a, as a, as an actor in the market, I get to close the feedback loop for that company and say, Hey, there's customers who actually need this, so you might want to change that. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, you're a unique interview with me, Chris, because you have your own company doing this particular thing. I want to move over into the Christian influence, say, in larger companies. You know, so take yourself, put, put on your, you know, Christian influencing the world hat instead of yeah. what you get to do in your own company. Um, and, and talk a little bit about you know, what, what that voice might bring into a company that says our only bottom line is profit. And, you know, the market forces are the driving forces for us. And so how do Christian doctrines um, impact that? Let, let me, let's skip doctrines and go to virtues um, or fruits of the spirit maybe. And what kind of unique influence could Christians have in that setting? Or have you given thought to that as well? I, I mean, I think I have to a small degree um, because I used to work at Amazon and I started the Theology of Technology discussion group there. And sometimes the best witness is simply existence. It's first of all, existence. And so I find that the majority of uh, people I know of faith in the tech industry may not be vocal about their faith. And it may be because, you know, faith and, and politics gets intermingled or they just want to keep their head down, do their work, get paid and kind of take care of their families and go to church, you know? Mm -hmm. But 
I, I would say that it has to begin with the, with the, the testimony that is that, hey, we exist uh, and not being shy about that. Yeah, we're followers of Jesus. Yeah, we believe the Bible and we exist in this company. We're going to do good work. We're going to serve and we're not boasting about it. We're not trying to build a platform for us to show that, hey, we're such great employees. And also, guess what? We're Christian. It's just like the fact that, yeah, this is it's an expression of who I am. Many companies today want to support the idea of bring your whole selves to work. And so if a company believes that not only in uh, in you know lip service, but in practice, then obviously for any Christian, your whole self includes your faith in Jesus Christ. You believe that the Holy Spirit dwells in you and that your identity is in Christ. And so that is a massive opportunity on the level of existence to be, to be a witness inside the company. That's the, I think that's the first thing, um, actually, very practically uh, for any believer in the tech industry is to make known their identity. And again, not to make it a big show or something like that, but just like be comfortable with it. It is part of your whole self. It's who you show up as in the company. That already changes things. And people have all kinds of preconceived notions of what a Christian is or does or believes or whatever. And that's okay. The exist Your existence gets to redefine people's expectations. Your existence is the testimony about Christ in you. They get to get to know who Jesus is because if they get to know you. Uh, that's like, I think that's like the fundamental conviction. Um, I also happen to know that there's different layers in the company, right? There's like executive levels. And then there's just, there's just like the, the people on the bottom rung. Um, and that's, that existence thing is something that anybody can do. It doesn't matter if you're at the top or at the bottom, that bearing witness to who you are in Christ is something that anybody can do. So it applies to all Christians in the tech industry at the top. There's obviously more influence that, that you might have. Um, and I don't, I, I know of Christians like church going Christians, at least who have been executives at companies like Microsoft, Google, Facebook, Amazon, like they exist. I don't really, uh, I talked once to a former CIO of Microsoft who retired and I got to ask him about this question a little bit about faith and work integration. And he told me he actually, personally, he actually regretted that he didn't do more of it while he was there in his role. Mm. Uh, he, it just, it wasn't that important to him when he was in that role. Um, and so it maybe it was a missed opportunity because I don't know what other influence he could have had other than just being a leader and a Christ follower. Uh, in terms of shaping the technology of the business as a CIO and things like that. But that, that's just what he expressed to me, you know? Um, and I also think that uh, the influence of uh, believers at the executive level may not be even as great as we think that they are. Like, uh, you know, there's always, there's it's so nuanced. There's so much politics involved and you're still accountable to a board of directors and everything else like that. Uh, and so I, I feel like um, bringing up things that are important, uh, you know, in the common good is always helpful, but it's not uniquely Christian. Uh, I think what makes things, what makes a point uniquely Christian is when it's tied to your faith and faith, meaning not like my Christian faith, but faith as in like, oh, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Bible. The scripture talks about this as what the condition of our world is today. It diagnoses it this way. Scripture promises this is the future that we're moving to. And for these particular reasons, I think this is the right course of action for this product line, this business, or the way that we go about this. And we should not move forward until we address these other concerns because you know we're fully aware of the ways what we build can be abused. When you ground it in your faith in that sense, it's a very grounded faith, then as an executive or even as a manager or even as a developer, you are making, you are making a difference as a Christian, as a, uniquely as a Christian, I think. 
Um, and I remember even for software engineers, there's a whole movement called software craftsmanship. And they, they're trying to say that software craftsmanship is different than just being a programmer. It's about being a software professional. And the way they define professionalism was that you have the backbone to say no. Uh, so if you think about it, if by analogy, like a bridge builder who is a professional engineer, if their client asked them to cut corners, they would walk away. They wouldn't take the money. They would say, no, we will not do that. That is not in line with you know, the values and ethics of our profession. And we're going to walk away because that's not right to build a bridge in this way. It's going to collapse and people are going to die. Um, and so similarly with the software engineer or an AI professional or something, it's, it comes down to that conscience and having that backbone uh, to basically be able to say, you know, I understand what you're trying to do. This is what's right. And if you force this, I will walk away because I cannot in good conscience do this. And that liberty of conscience is something that I think is a uniquely, maybe you could say Christian philosophy, at least in the, in the theology of Paul, as you read uh, Romans and the other letters and everything like that. And so it's a place where we can have, we can get into things about common good for all of society that I think that in our kind of Western society, we have a foundation for that, but it's also uniquely Christian to be able to stand for that liberty of conscience uh, whereas a professional at whatever level people are in the organization, they're informed by their faith, they're informed by scripture, and they will stand for that. Ultimately, they will stand for that. And they're willing to sacrifice for what they believe to be right. Um, and so that's another way that there's an influence, uh, I think, for the larger companies. Yeah. And, and key to that is the willingness to sacrifice what may be um, more financial gain or um, going with the flow and not causing you know, trouble in the company. And that is that risk of living by faith to say, I believe God will reward these actions in, in regard to my faith. So um, the fascinating thing to me is that you are kind of reframing this, Chris, into a, it's not just about ethics and the common good, it's about radical faith and being you know, because we can get wrapped around the axle on all these ethical questions. And, and as soon as you even start going down the line, it's like, well, whose ethics? You know, if I'm an anti-war activist, I'm yeah. going to be pitted against a person who says, if we don't develop this technology, we're going to get killed by the other people who are developing the technology. So there's that tension of, yep. I don't want to make a weapon, but I better make a weapon. Otherwise, I'm going to die, right? So yep. on that level, expand a little bit about your thinking um, in, the, in the tension of just living in the, in the realm of those kinds of decisions. I think that uh, you bring up a fantastic question. And the first, there's two things that came to my mind when you mentioned it. One was Ecclesiastes, mm. where it says there's a time for war and a time for peace, a time to live and a time to die, a time to, uh, what is it, throw stones, a time to gather stones. And it seemed to indicate in its philosophical wisdom literature language, like, you know, there is a time for everything. God, you know, God has given a time and place for all these things. Um, and so that it shows that there's not some universal ethical principle that you adhere to, which then you just apply a logical rule to, to say, this is what's right. This is what's wrong. Uh, it's something that uh, it, it's something that is beyond us that God knows. And that for those of us who are Christians in fear of God, we seek to live with a clear conscience before God, and we have to act according to the best of our limited knowledge, limited capacity, trusting in the Holy Spirit, um, and making faithful decisions as we can, and accepting the consequences of those decisions, and also accepting the grace of God to redeem even our broken decisions. 
And so that's, I think, what it looks like living by faith um, as a Christian and making those really hard choices. And we can use our minds and everything else, of course, but what's uniquely Christian also is in our consideration. Uh, We're not simply, for example, trying to uphold the Imago Dei, the image of God, which is a very common way to talk about the common good. There is a telos. There is a purpose. History is not simply about um, having every person have dignity. History is uniquely about the salvation of the world the salvation of creation, that God is going to set creation free from its bondage to decay and make a new thing. And people who have faith in Christ, who are united to Jesus, will be raised from the dead and rule over a new creation in which we will see the true glory, the true perfection of all of our human makings and so much more. And so if we can, if we, if that future breaks into the present through our lives and through our witness, through our our faith into our work, then that is us fulfilling our Christian vocation as a witness to the new creation that God's promised us. And it's also the invitation for others to believe as well and also inherit the new creation. So those are the things that need to, that need to kind of happen. And I, I have to say that uh, reading recently reading Jacques Ellul's The Presence of the Kingdom really helped to clarify this for me again and rearticulating it. I thought of it before, but he, he specifically mentions this idea that I thought it was insightful that the Christian ethic cannot be defined by ethical rules and morals. It really is that future breaking into the present. It's that future that we believe God has promised coming in and starting to invade what we experience now here and now. I'm like, oh, this is this is what it's like. And so as a Christian, that's why all of our knowledge of what's right and wrong in a situation is very contingent. It's never like, here's the rule, like war, not war. It's actually like, oh, where's where's this going? What is God doing here and now? And how do we join with what God is doing in order that we can be also aligned with God and faithful in what God's calling us to do? And according to our conscience, since we don't have perfect knowledge. Um, you're just, you're killing me, Chris. I love this. Um, so many things come into my head that I can't keep track of what I wanted to ask you, but this idea, <laughs> this idea of human dignity being the utmost, it's not what you're saying is that's the baseline. The Christian faith takes it to the kingdom. It takes it to the new mm-hmm. creation in Christ, as opposed to just allowing everyone to have this minimum dignity and being treated fairly. And, and that's where the ethics conversation is. It's political, it's political and not transcendent. Yes, I agree. Further software is a rules-based thing. And and you throw these, these words into my brain and I'm thinking 10 commandments. And then, so that's the Torah and then the Talmud and then the, you know, 600, pages of what's work in, yeah. in getting down to the, Mishpot, splitting, yeah. the, the legalism versus yeah. the expansionism of it. So too many things on my end. Talk to me a little bit about then this, the, the, the modeling and how AI works um, with models and code and algorithms and massive amounts of data and compute power. Is there anything in that that this new creation mentality can speak to or influence? Or is that just, that's what you that's your raw materials, that's your physics? Well, I mean, um, that's an interesting question. And I have to think more deeply on it to find possibly analogies that would, that would give insight, that would shed light. One thought though, at least when it comes to modeling and data, is that we're always we're always limited in our models. Why? Because it's all based off of historical data. It's always based on the past. And we can do predictions, but if you're familiar with black the idea of black swan events and everything like that, 
you can't predict the future. There's some things we can kind of predict with some accuracy, but nobody could have predicted COVID-19, right? Um, like people were forecasting, oh, and there's, there could be a pandemic, there could be a pandemic. People could always say that. But what actually happened and the way it affected our whole world, not just the country, not just, you know, nobody could have predicted that. And so our models are always limited by the fact that they're rooted in historical data. And then, of course, by the way, with the pandemic, all of our models got kind of like ruined because all the historical data was no longer modeling human behavior properly because everything changed and we had to update our models with new data. So when it comes to integrating that with faith, I think that anyone who believes that God is alive and active in the world today and is not deistic, where God kind of set up the rules and just let it run. If you believe, if you're a deist and just believe kind of God set up the rules and let things run and run their course, maybe you could believe that you could have an AI model that could accurately predict the deterministic outcome of history based on getting enough input and being able to model all of it. But if you believe in the Holy Spirit, an active uh, living God who is actively working in history and human beings to bring about the promised outcome of that's born witness to in scripture, then you already know that all of our models are contingent. They're all temporary. They're all provisional. They're really there to help us to make choices and to, to be useful for per certain practical things, but they're going to have to continually change and they're going to have to change in ways that we cannot predict up front. So you end up being, I think you can, you end up being very realistic about your models and you want to use them in a humble way, not in a way that you, you believe it's going to have all the answers is going to kind of control everything. And, and that you can, you know, that now you're the master over this particular realm or something, you're going to use them in humble ways. Um, and you're going to be open to changing your models. Uh, to take in different kinds of data and everything like that. You're going to seek to probably make your models as updatable as possible in real time as possible so that they can continue to adapt to what's happening in reality. Um, and, and those are just some kind of like practical side effects that I can see coming out of that, that, that realization simply that, uh, you know, God is active and there can be black swans. There could be things that we do not anticipate that could change everything. And so we want to be agile with our models. We want to be able to adapt to the, to the new realities that are coming up and be able to follow uh, where God's leading with what we're creating. You're giving such beautiful um, articulation to the Christian um, gospel, really. And you mentioned what I would call the blind watchmaker God, uh, you mm -hmm. know, set the wheels in motion and let it go. It's deterministic. Um, it'll play out as it plays out um, without surprise. Yeah. God is a surprising God. Yes. Both in, in good and bad, you know, we see these things, <laughs> the bad works for the good. Um, there's just a thousand ways to go. I want to ask you, um, going back to this fixation on ethical behavior and, you know, making sure people do the right thing, right? This is a yeah. big kind of theme in politics too. Um, talking about the prevailing secular view on how we ensure ethical behavior versus the Christian view. Um, I think you could probably speak on this, but are ethical principles and laws enough? Um, or what is the alternative to, um, from a Christian gospel perspective on ethical behavior? How do, how do we contribute in that um, light? And maybe this is taking it a little bit over to the personal as well. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. It, it kind of makes sense. And it's a hard question, uh, frankly, because there's so much nuance to it. Mm -hmm. I think that as a Christian, of course, we believe that renewal and transformation happens first through within, from within. It is through the, the action of the Holy Spirit on a person that changes them and gives them the power 
to behave, quote unquote, ethically and in ways that go beyond that creatively. Um, we see in scripture that there's a comparison between the law in its totality and the royal law of love, which is the call, called the sum of all the law and the prophets. The royal law of love, unlike all the other laws, is not proscriptive. It is actually generative. It's creative. Uh, it unleashes. To love your neighbor as you love yourself is something that is above it. Like, you can do that in a million ways. It's not telling you don't do this, don't do that. Um, and so there's like there's an element there where I think that one of the ways that as Christians we influence we influence society is actually within our own lives. It's not even through institutions or anything. It's the vitality of the Holy Spirit kind of leaking out through our lives. Or as Paul would say, we have this treasure in jars of clay and the jar of clay may, be, may seem quite ordinary, but the treasure is glorious. And as we get bumped and bruised through life and stuff, that treasure, the, the glory of the treasure of, that is Christ is unveiled in our lives so that this gives true dignity to every person, the Christian of the lowest estate, the poorest of the poor, has that dignity that through the Holy Spirit's work in their life, the glory of God is put on display in a unique context that no one else could possibly uh, demonstrate the power and the grace of God in that context, just as much as the wealthiest person. Um, and, and that is, uh, I guess, one that is, that is truly affirming of their dignity as a way that only God can do it. But also in their witness, they actually do show, um, I guess, it's, they're, it's not just ethical behavior, it's something more, it's glory, it's vitality, it's life, uh, and it's overflowing life. And so I think that um, that like uh, ethics and rules and everything like that are never gonna match up to that kind of vital force in a person's life, but the ethics and rules might be distillations of things from the past that we found to be you know, in accordance with life in a certain way, but they themselves are provisional. And we see, you know, they're just provisional tools that we use. We should put them in, the, in their humble place instead of make elevating them to the status of a God, of making them the thing that control and define all of our activity and the thing that we arrange, organize our lives around. Um, if we put them in a humbler place, they can still be useful, I think. And I don't know if this is an accurate theological statement, but I think that in the same way that the law is still useful and valuable for the Christian, although they are no longer under the law, because it actually explicates, it expounds. God's will. It kind of shows like, oh, this is God's way. And even Paul could use the scripture that said, don't muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. Animals really the big deal. Obviously not. That's what Paul interprets it as and says that God is saying that those who are basically reaping a, you know, a spiritual seed should also reap a material harvest. Um, and so I can see ethics and the whole conversation around it as useful in illuminating those kinds of things, but they would make for a very terrible organizing principle for human life and society, because that vitality is something that's far greater. Um, linking it to even mathematics, where people have tried to prove an axiomatic basis for all of math, and then Godel, Kurt Godel had this famous incompleteness theorem, right? That anytime you try to build an axiomatic basis, there's always some contradictory thing. You have to add another axiom basically to cover additional cases. Um, that, to me, I don't understand the deep math of it, but it's just another hint at this underlying deeper reality that ethics can never codify what God has woven into creation itself. And that that vitality of the Holy spirit, that creative generative force is so much more. And that is the thing that I, I personally believe the more that we can help people to live into that and Christians specifically, um, that is going to actually be what, what produces the, the real vitality that people long for when they talk about the common good or when they talk about ethics and dignity and stuff, that may be the language that is used, but what's actually 
desired of the human heart, if you believe Ecclesiastes, is God has put eternity on the hearts of human beings so that they can't find it <laughs> and right. so that they might see God. And so there's something transcendent that's definitely desired in all those things. Yeah. You know, Jesus, 10 things again, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition, right? So these black swan events, um, even Christ's first coming was unexpected, even though it was prophesied heavily. Yes. It's like, no, that's not the guy we thought was coming. And and nor was his death on the cross and his resurrection was all surprising, surprising. And it was bigger. Um, You bring up terms like love, generative, creative, and they exceed the law, which illuminates our sin. Um, So I wanna bring it back to AI, artificial intelligence, which is by many many, um, accounts, no longer really a good uh, term for it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But that's where, that's this this, um, constellation of technologies that is attempting at or running at the human intelligence hill. Yeah. Only on steroids, right? It's like, take what's good about us, but make it better. Um, So all of this that you're talking about, this love, this generative, this beyond ethics and the lowest common denominator, how should that, how should we be thinking about just the technology of artificial intelligence then through that lens? is it something are we are we aiming well, for a lowest common denominator there too and in and excluding divine intelligence as part of the the formula because it's just hmm, like uh, as far as i can see human and machine and nobody's really calling out the fact that there is a divine intelligence that gave us ours um mm-hmm. i mean i i mean there's there's so many ways to take that question and i think that um Early, uh, like back in 2015, I gave a talk about AI for the kingdom or AI for the gospel. And one just random thought I had from that talk was, you know, with regard to ethics, we already have seen this story play out, even if the people who believe in superintelligence are right. And basically, God created human beings in, in God's image um, and gave them freedom, autonomy, to make choices. And then they rebelled against God's will and law. And the question was, how is God going to deal with that? As, as the creator, God could destroy human beings or God could do something else. And we see the way that God responded to rogue AI, you could say. If human beings are an artificial intelligence of the divine intelligence, and then human beings create an artificial intelligence of our human intelligence, uh, you can learn from God's pattern in scripture of how God treats rogue human AI. <laughs> and, uh, and what does God do? God actually works actively to save and redeem us. Uh, not simply, you know, set the reset button, erase it or something else, not even fear that it would get out of control and destroy God somehow. Uh, I just think there's some interesting analogies there in what, what the human project of trying to create artificial general intelligence is and uh, what we have in, in the kind of the original stories of, of Genesis. Okay, so, so that's one. Well, you know, go off there because that is, I've had that exact thing and no one has ever jumped on it like you have. Um, I think our fears of AI are the exact same thing that we fear of our kids or we fear that, you know, we see that God did give us free will. We see the potential, although most people say it's never gonna get there, the super intelligence, the AGI. Mm. Uh, 
we see this this potential with fear and trepidation. What if it goes rogue and we can't control it? Um, but again, we don't have sovereignty uh, like God has sovereignty. So as we dabble in this, or is there, you know, the Frankenstein story, the all the, mm-hmm. God, the, the tech that got away stories uh, in sci-fi. Yeah, what, Frankenstein, Sorcerer's Apprentice, oh, or even maybe like, yeah. yeah, or like the nuclear bomb. You yeah. know, like once it gets out of hand, I mean, everything could fall apart. And so, so, so do you think there's any boundaries even in scripture or in, in theology that that warn us against doing something that only God can do? Or should we just go for it and trust that God's sovereignty is going to have agency over our stupid creations or our wonderful creations as well see the reason why i feel like it's not that weird is because as christians we already believe in a super intelligence that is actually malicious towards us which is satan so it's not weird satan has so much more power than any human being and so much more intelligence than any human being and uh actively works against god's will to destroy human human civilization human lives to corrupt it to dominate it so it's the the challenge we face isn't that new from that angle, from that perspective. There already has been super intelligence opposed to humanity and opposed to God. Um, and, and so likewise, in the same way that people in past, past ages who didn't have access to AI, they had to trust God. They had to trust one more powerful and one supremely good um, to basically protect them and to be there for them and then to live faithfully in accordance with God's will in light of that context. Because like, you know, scripture even says that Satan's considered the ruler of this world. Um, and so the world systems even, right, the human institutions that have been corrupted and that enforce things contrary to God's will for humanity, we, human beings don't have power over that. You could, you could kind of argue that there's some super intelligence there. It's not just one person, right? It's a whole army of people who are hive. moving in a certain way, a hive, right? So it's not that weird of a problem. But what I will say is this, is that in light of, I would say that Christians ought to have a sense of urgency, a sense of urgency. And it's not a weird sense of urgency. It's like Jesus himself said, you know, be alert, be watchful because the time is at hand, right? So, you know, and uh, so there is a sense of urgency to make the most, uh, the most quote unquote best use of the technologies God has caused us to live in. Like this is when we, the Christians who are alive now, this is the time that we live in, right? And so how can we, how can we quote unquote redeem the time? How can we make the most of the technologies God has made available to us to further the things that we believe God has called us to, that are God's will for humanity and for the world, um, because we know that there is also an opposing force that is actively working to also take the, the best of these inventions and use them for other purposes that are contrary to God's will. So we don't believe, I don't think as a Christian, I personally believe that we could ever save the world, right? That we could ever build AI so that's so perfect, so good, they can only do good or anything like that. I don't think that at all. Even history has shown examples of really great companies, great products that eventually get corrupted. Mm-hmm. It just, it's a part of our reality, great nations that get corrupted. Um, and so if we know that, then our role as Christians is maybe more as salt and light, right? We're preservative for as much as we can be. We're illuminating for as much as we can be to try to direct these things in ways that will advance God's purposes and will. But we do so with humility because we know that one, God's ultimately the one saving the world through in and through us, but through Christ ultimately. And then two, we also know that there are very powerful forces that are opposed to God's will and to humanity um, that are at work. And so we're not surprised. We're not caught off guard or surprised when we find out, yep, 
I knew that that would happen with that technology. It's just inevitable because of these other, you know, other evil forces at work. But that's why all the more ought we to be innovating for for the kingdom of God, innovating for a witness to the gospel, innovating to love people and serve them well. So that's kind of how I see it. Yeah. So the ethicists that are mostly political, um, because they're not spiritual, but they sometimes use spiritual language, um, they're focused on, you know, not having bad things happen. And I think with our worldview as Christians, we know that bad things are going to happen just based on, you know, what you've just articulated. And we know why. Um, There's an active force and we have a fallen nature. And so maybe the approach isn't so much put the brakes on making it just those corner cases of expectation of how and when it's going to get used badly um, have in mind then the redemptive quality that God does like with us, right? We sin, we fall, he corrects and forgives and then we do it again and he does it again and, and so on. So I, like you say, we're not going to escape it in this life. Um, this is the tip yep. that we have to work with. Yep. And so there's like practical things that we do, I think, in light of that context that, that we believe exists uh, to, try to try to mitigate things. And it's again, a humble mitigation. We're not trying to solve everything, but one of those is, you know, that idea of agility and being able to update our models or freedom and giving other people, giving the people who are going to be affected by the AI, the power to even like give, close the feedback loop somehow, right. To, to adjust and use it for their community, for their context, not to try to use AI as leverage to impose a certain worldview on everyone else uh, because you have that platform to do so but empowering people to be able to create their subcontext or their genre, their domain, and use the AI for, their, for the purposes that are, that are helpful for them. Um, there's just certain, and then also things like open sourcing, which I think is generally a good thing because it does enable people to fork it. If they disagree with the way that it's, the project's going, they have some freedom to do something different with it. Um, open sourcing data sets, if possible, and things like that, which I think that these are all good things from the perspective of just like practically, if you believe things are going to get corrupted, it's helpful to have kind of uh, exits, you know, like uh, built in, like uh, emergency exits built in so that if something happens with that one and it goes in a really bad direction, there's others who God might call and to use it in a different way. You're kind of like prepping the environment for others. And it's a very kind of like a wider view too, because it's not, I recognize uh, even in scripture, you look at David or something that even me as a Christian is corruptible. You know, David is called the man after God's own heart and a good king. And he commits one of the worst atrocities in scripture as a king, abusing his power, murdering someone, committing adultery and covering it up. Uh, and so, and then God, of course, does also redeem him still. But there's that, there's that awareness, even for me as a creator of AI is that, you know, I'm, it's not like I'm the good guy either, not necessarily, right? Um, and so even in creating these things, like being aware, because it's a, it's a very contingent practical thing, okay, what kinds of safeguards do we need to be building in, like escape hatches or whatever, so that even if I get corrupted or if my company gets acquired or something, and then all of a sudden all that freedom gets taken away, it's possible. What are the ways that we can still have these ways for customers to have that freedom and to use it for what they need to use it for, et cetera. So that's kind of the, I would say that more than an ethical principle, it's like a mindset, a mindset that is very realistic, that, that says, as you, t- as you just mentioned to me, takes into account the fallenness of the world, the corruption that we believe is inevitably like always trying to, to take over things. And then in light of that, trying to build our things in a way that can be, uh, that can be redeemed, you know, ways that can be 
healed, ways that I can recover, that I can recover from these kinds of situations and give people freedom. So in, in a conversation I had a couple of days ago, um, this woman was saying it's odd to her that we have, I, I keep forgetting the word because it's not optimized for, but it kind of is. Um, artificial intelligence kind of posits that intelligence is the ultimate good or the ultimate goal. And she said, maybe we ought to be thinking about whatever the word is she said for love, you know, because God defines himself as love. He doesn't ever, it, we don't hear, read in the Bible, God is intelligence. And the one who has intelligence is like God and God is, you know, the first John, um, God is love and the one who yeah. love lives in God and God lives in him. Um, is intelligence kind of a, a, a missing of the mark, just like ethics is a missing of the mark to some degree. Does that make sense? I just made this question up because. Well, I, I kind of, I think I kind of get it. I don't really know what artificial love would look like, but I, I do think that intelligence, it depends on what you want to, because we're, we're in the realm of literature now. So it's like more like words. It's not like hard and fast definitions, well, but I'm well, thinking go like. Back, go back and say, forget the word artificial, because that's not even, that isn't what we're doing. It's machine intelligence, right? Okay. Yeah. I mean, so I think that. Uh, what I, I, the, I have a few thoughts. Uh, one of them is, one of them is with the word intelligence itself, depending on what analogies you want to draw, you could connect it to logos. In the beginning was the word, the kind of God's, you know, orderly creation and expression of God's, uh, God's own intelligence, you could say. The word, and then Proverbs 8, wisdom. Wisdom is through wisdom, God created all things. Um, and wisdom was with God from the beginning. And so there's ways that you could still tie intelligence to God's identity, I think, if you wish to. If you wish to, you could, you could say that. And it would still be very significant, theologically, very meaningful, and might even lend, shed light on what we should be aiming for in intelligence, because wisdom in scripture isn't just raw computational power. It is actually knowledge of what true righteousness, justice, and steadfast love is, which is God's expression of God's identity in Jeremiah. So if you wanted to go for wisdom, intelligence, and logos and stuff, you would include with it, within it, even uh, the knowledge of what is right what is righteous which you could argue maybe it has to do with ethics but it seems like the biblical concept is so much more what is just right uh what is going to display the character of god in god's creation so so there's that element of if you wanted to aim for something and still use the word artificial intelligence you could you could still aim for something like that like how can we use this machine power as an expression of the creativity and intelligence and justice of god in this world and the orderliness of the world and modeling that and applying it for ends that are going to be um in accordance with god's will like you, you could make a case for something like that with love i think what the interesting question is is i don't know i don't know if i would say a, an artificial or a machine is capable of love. That's the thing that's kind of, because we pause with it as I think about it, um, not believing that machines have a, a soul or a consciousness, like, you know, in scripture with the creation of human beings, God breathes life into the clay that was formed into Adam and that, and that, and then Adam became a living soul. So there's that breath of God element that we have, that human beings have a way to reproduce and have children who have that breath as well of life. Um, 
that I don't know if you would apply that to a machine. And then I don't know to what degree that would indicate a machine could love in the human sense of, of love. Maybe there's some other conception of it we could think of. Well, let me, but... let me bring in a, an, a thought or an example. And I just, I love talking to you because you bring things to my mind. Uh, recently that paper um, called Delphi towards um, moral machines, or, you know, it's the, um, they, they got this 1.7 million response um, database from Reddit, uh, am I the asshole? And okay. Abby, and you know, so that it's, it's crowdsourced morality. And okay. they put it into a model and they're claiming it's like 92% accurate and comparing it to GPT three or two or whatever that is um, yeah. in terms of, but, um, it got confounded right away. I'll send you the link if you haven't seen it. They're, they published the paper and okay. then they also have a demo site that you can go to and play around yeah. with it. Um, and then there's been Wired Magazine already came out with a like detraction article about what's wrong. <laughs> so did everybody else. Um, yeah. But there's an example of taking the idea of machine learning and AI to help outsource wisdom, outsource ethical decision-making in uncertainty. So it's all these corner cases, it's all these permutations, you know, is it okay to drive a car? Yes. Is it okay to drive a car that you stole? No. Is it okay to drive a car too fast? No. Is it okay if you're trying to get to the hospital and someone's dying? It's, you know, all of the things that you would say ethically, morally, there are situations where just saying that is you know, right or wrong, but then there's places where it isn't. So this idea of bringing into the realm of AI and machine learning, machines that make moral decisions like oracles. Yeah. Um, and they've even called it Del Delphi. And, yeah. Um, so, I guess that's I think, where I that's where I would sort of drive your thinking. I just um, I mean, moral reasoning is something that philosophers have engaged in for a long time and have thought to try to have to automate it. Right. Isn't Immanuel Kant known for trying to do the categorical imperative as his framework right. for what's ethical and not? So I don't see it as something anything new under the sun. And I think the crowdsourcing is actually probably feeding into a myth of morality by majority. Right. Whatever the majority at the time believes is OK is OK. And whatever they don't think is okay is not okay. And it's kind of very, it undermines the foundations of any kind of transcendent justice or whatever that, that is not based off of just human, uh, human, you know, opinion. Mm -hmm. So I'm not so sure what I think about that project. I, I do think that another element of it that is interesting is that even as you brought up the question of, is it okay to drive a car? You know, what, what's hard about that is that some people might say it's not okay. I have friends who are so uh, environmentally concerned. They actually think it's wrong to drive a car like they would say like no we should be like minimizing all of that as much as possible it's morally wrong because we're destroying the environment i don't agree with it but i see where they're coming from and that's a different context right and that's the challenge here i come from i i as i got married recently i i'm learning so much more about cultural context my wife is filipino but she's more uh western and uh, in a lot of ways and i'm more I'm, I'm born here but i'm more eastern in a lot of ways and one of the key differences is that i think in the west we tend to speak in this way thesis Thesis, evidence, 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 or thesis, justification, justification, justification. So we make our point first, and then we try to prove it. In the East, 
we go in circles. Why? We're saying context, 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 conclusion. And we're trying to set the context so that you, you share our context and then you arrive at the same conclusion as us. And so when East meets West and they communicate, it can be really challenging because the Westerners like, what's your point? Where are you getting with this? And the Easterner is like, I can't tell you my point because you have to have my context to even understand my point. And then there's this communication difference. When I hear what you said about the ethical kind of moral reasoning systems and stuff like that, I think that's where the challenge lies is that you can never fully specify the context in the way the machine could even know to be able to give you the right moral answer. You never could specify the context. You can give it a thesis, like a single point, and try to define it as best as you can. And it can be a tool to assist you in reasoning through the possible, the different possibilities. I could see that, where it's saying, hey, have you considered this? Have you considered that? Right? Machines are good at extending what our, our limited human memory can, can have capacity for. So it might have the structure of, hey, we've interviewed 10,000 people, and here's some common perspectives that they might have on this situation. So then how, how would you choose given your situation, right? That's really useful, but guess what? It's not automated. The human is making the decision. The human is the moral agent, not the computer. The computer is an assistant that surfaces knowledge the human could never have access to otherwise to help them to, to think about it differently and with a broader perspective and maybe more, you know, more confidence, but they got to take that leap of faith that they got to own their decision basically still. Yeah. And even one of the confounding things about it was the responses to what's okay are wildly different between cultures, within cultures, uh, within genders, um, oh, yeah. politically, et cetera, uh, even among religions. And so even if you had a consensus with one group, it wouldn't be the same with another. And mm -hmm. it just goes in circles, which is the same with the ethics conversation ad infinitum time immemorial, right? Uh-huh. And I think that's actually the beautiful thing is that if, as Christians, at least we would say, this is probably the side effects, the intended, the intended side effects of the Tower of Babel, actually. When God divided the languages, divided the cultures, it created this fragmentation of, huma of humanity, which biblically speaking was by design. In Paul's language later, he says that God ordained all the times and places for every language and nation and stuff like that, so that by some means they all might feel their way towards God. And so there's a wisdom of God that's still being expressed that as human beings, we've never been able to overcome and mm. uh, trying to say, this is the same foundation for all of us. And we're all going to agree to this. And therefore we can then act as one unified whole. Right. The only way that that's possible is the one that's divinely appointed, which is through Jesus Christ, the only mediator who, who unites us to God and makes us one in him and enables us to have our diversity while still being led by the same Holy Spirit. It's like the, that's like God's only solution for all of us to ever attain to that unity that human beings have been clawing for forever and uh, that God wisely probably fragmented at Babel. Yeah. You know, Chris, you have um, exploded my questions in a great way. I'm gonna have to do an analysis of your interview and revise my questions because I think you've driven it in a direction that actually makes sense in terms of how we even think about the ethical question, the, the idea of ethical AI. And it's a big deal in Google and Microsoft. They have, you know, these big principles and these statements and you've got, you know, the Roman Catholic Church saying, you know, here's the Rome call for AI ethics and the mm -hmm. Southern Baptist Convention going, you know, our principles for AI but with a biblical basis. So people are all thinking about it, but they're really, really thinking about it in terms of ethics. Yeah, and you're, I know. And that's not the point. That is what I'm saying, that you got, you got it. 
And uh, I was a little bit comforted reading Jacques Ellul simply because I was like, hey, this guy is saying kind of what I'm saying in my time, but he said in his time much better than I ever could. Um, and I don't agree with everything he says, but no, what was that? I, I got to get that book. I, I'm familiar with Jacques Ellul, but um, Techniques in Society, not, you it's know. Called the, it was called The Presence, presence of, the kingdom, of the Kingdom. And there's just, I, I think that what it really identify with is that, that same feeling that's like, everyone's trying to make it about this other thing. But in terms of, as a Christian, it's not about that thing. And he's kind of calling that out in his time, basically. Um, and then and inviting that, us back again to life in Christ through the Holy Spirit in our time, in our context, and what that looks like. Yeah. I mean, that's it right there. And it's actually not what the Christians have to say about that, but what how the Christians reframe the issue and reclaim the point. So, yeah. Well, listen. I think so. Um, I just came from the COSM conference that Discovery Institute put on and Richard Vigilante, who wrote Panic, uh, ended the conference by saying this was the most information dense. It was successful because it was information dense. And the only thing that counts as information for him is something that surprises him. That's, <laughs> that's information. And he goes, Excellent. I kept getting surprised. So this was, this was good. Um, do you have any other thoughts that that I haven't asked you that you kind of think, hey, this should be in, uh, this is so information dense, um, this interview with you, Chris. By the way, can I ask, I do a podcast now, not for Microsoft Research, but for the Beatrice Institute. And I would love to have you on next year, if you'd be willing. Sure. Or, I mean, I honestly, if this, this conversation was really energizing for me too. And if we wanted to, if we could use it maybe after your paper's published or something, to post this this interview even i think there's a lot of vitality there that i'd love to be able to put oh, out or you could put it out with so that podcast rich. too yeah no, no, no totally um i see a, another life and to be honest you've been the most um provocatively prescient person that i've spoken with yet i have maybe 15 more but um you've set the bar real, the bar really high for <laughs> well for thanks that. gretchen um, <laughs> So is there any other thoughts that you have before I let the record button go? And because um, I think we've covered beyond I feel like I we've, expected. yeah, I think that we've covered a lot of good ground. And um, yeah. the only, uh, you know, the only thought I can think of, this is not really about AI, is just practically for other believers. It's that this is not just a theoretical conversation. We, this is our time that we live in. And so it, it's relevant to every Christian to discern how God is calling us to live faithfully in this time with the, the unique calling that God has for us in our context in life mm -hmm. and not to be afraid to live full of faith instead of fear. Um, and then to continue to be a witness for the kingdom in how, how we go about doing this, you know, and in, in walking with the Holy spirit. So that's like the most practical thing I can think of that would be beautiful if yeah. it spread, you know, among Christians. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. There, there's actually a lot more in terms of the ominous nature of surveillance technology and weapons, autonomous weapons and things like that. Not for this conversation, but I think you and I could, we should actually do a podcast together. So mm -hmm. um, anyway, uh, thank you so much. Happy Thanksgiving. I am happy Thanksgiving to God for you, Chris, so much. You're just an amazing. Thank you, Gretchen. Grateful that you can do this work too. This research is very important. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Theotech Podcast. And a special thank you to our patrons who've made it possible for us to share these conversations about the theology of technology. 
If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so at patreon.com slash theotech. Thank you again for listening, and until next time.